and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Linda Codega, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, I'm Linda Codega. I'm a local weirdo journalist cryptid hiding in your house. I'm not really in your house, but I might be in a like darkened alleyway just like waiting for the next corporate fuck up. That's me. Coming through your headphones right now, creeping <laughs> around the corner. Local cryptid, that's me. I'm slightly embarrassed to ask this question. Um, what's a cryptid? Cryptid. It's like, it's one of those sort of weird folklore monster monsters that like everyone kind of knows and recognizes like Mothman, Bigfoot, the Yeti, uh, Jersey Devil. It's not necessarily Amer- an American thing, but it's definitely, there's a lot of cryptids in America. Uh, Loch Ness Monster is considered a cryptid. It's one of those like weird mix of like folklore, but also like modern storytelling. Have you, I, I'm going to immediately segue to like a very serious topic now that you've brought this up. So um, have you read this book, uh, Monsters in America? Monsters in America are a historical obsession with the hideous and the haunting. Um, it's about uh, race, gender, identity, disability, and how we paint horror pictures or horror films into, wow. I'm going to link you real quick. I see you grabbing yeah. your... Your journalistic notepad. No one can see this, but I'm writing it down. I'm just like, monsters in America. Hell yeah. Uh, That is going on to my reading list, and I'm going to check that out in my local library. I will include that in the show notes as well. I recommend everyone reads that, especially if you're any sort of storyteller that tells horror stories. It goes through the films uh, within like the last hundred years or so that are horror based. And like it just explains why Dracula was considered to be a horror film. Uh, everything from uh, the fact that Dracula is a queer to Dracula is a Jew to Dracula is not from England um, and so on and so forth. And like just the um, the otherness that is really just wrapped up in horror and the way that we tell our stories. And it's important, I think. For me, at least as a professional GM, to be very mindful of those sort of stereotypes and tropes and like to be aware of why things are considered to be horror before you're running horror stories so that you're not unnecessarily falling into these things that both other different groups or sort of victimize people or make people very uncomfortable with their backgrounds if they're coming to the table, for instance, as a Jewish person and you're accidentally running an anti-Semitic plotline, you might want to know what anti-semitism looks like or you know what it what it feels like at the table but um i mean i think this is one of those reasons why cronenberg is like such a like his films are like queer canon at this point and why he really embraces that part of his fan base you know because he understands that like the act of transforming into a monster is an inherently like very queer story and I don't know if you've seen his newest film, which is his newest film. It's the one with Viggo Mortensen and Kristen Stewart. I forget the name of it right now. I haven't I haven't seen it. Crimes of the Future? Crimes of the Future. It's incredible. Oh. It's a beautiful trans allegory. It's basically about this man, uh, Viggo Mortensen, whose body starts making new organs. And oh. as part of his, like, performance art, he, like, uh, his partner surgically removes those organs as part of, like, their their like whole gig uh and like it's on display and like people want to study it and people are like really against the fact that there are people out there like growing new organs and like people are being born with these organs already inside of them it's an incredible trans allegory i highly recommend it but yeah it's absolutely one of those things where it's like it totally like matches what you're saying where it's like the monstrous is very othering and very queer and very very intense if you're wondering why my face is like this, like I'm watching the trailer like silently <gasps> while you're talking. And I'm just like, that's the most horrible thing I've seen in my life. I'm not watching that. However, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super into body horror, but yeah, I do Which... love like the cast and I love, um, what you've told me about it. Wow. That's intense. Um, I can, I can also link you a piece I wrote about how trans it is. Maybe that'll do it for you. Please do. Yeah. I would love <laughs> I would love to read about that. To actually, actually yeah. watch it. It's very intense. I will fully admit that, like, uh, go in knowing what Cronenberg does for a living, um, because it's very much in line with his usual stuff, and also like pushed even further. Right. Uh, I think I think it's an incredible piece, but I I will fully admit that it's very squeaky and squeamish and 
uh, there's a lot in it that's not for the faint of heart. It it actually got, there was a lot of pushback against it because of a lot of scenes mm. in this film. It was very uh, controversial for a lot of reasons. Wait, he did the fly? He did the, the fly! Oh my god. <laughs> yeah and also history of violence the simultaneously the movie that was perhaps one of like the best movies of that like era but also the worst because of a particular scene and i'm just like oh my gosh that's like i would probably never watch that again and i remember actually yeah gosh really? we're gonna talk we're, we're still talking about the trans experience so i remember watching that when i was a man right and then um or when i thought of myself as a man and <laughs> Just being super okay with, like, that scene and being like, yeah, this is what this movie is about. It's about, like, that sort of violence. And then looking back at it just with a different lens and, like, now that my perspective has changed. Totally different. Like, I'm just like, I could never watch that because... Like now, I could never, I could never watch any sort of depiction of like rape on the screen. Like I would not be able to handle that. It's rough. I think there's, it, there are very, very few directors that can do it well. Um, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to watch as it should be. It should always be difficult to watch something that traumatic. I agree. Let's, um, let's pivot to something uh, a little more near and dear to the trans community. Let's talk about right. what is... What is the relationship between Magic the Gathering and being in your egg as a trans person? Like, what, why is there, why is the magic in Magic the Gathering being hidden trans? Being hidden trans. Uh, I think that there's a couple of reasons. I think that Magic the Gathering tends to attract people who are, be outcasts in, other, in a lot of ways. I think that it also attracts people who enjoy looking at fantasy art of idealized forms, which is very pleasing to a lot of people, but I think especially to trans people when they imagine themselves in fantasy situations, they can imagine themselves very much easier if the, it's in a like fantasy planeswalker rather than like, oh yeah, that guy down the street looks like a dude that maybe I could be one day. Like it's harder to make that connection between real world people and it's much easier to do that when it's like, oh, I could be this amazing lady who shoots fireballs out of her eyes. Yeah. It's, it's it's the same vibe with like, why are the X-Men full of eggs? And we're just like, we all, we all know why. I think it's, it's definitely a lot of that. And I think it's also the fact that you get these very insular communities. A lot of people like, you know how queer friends just sort of like attract to each other and all of a sudden you like wake up and it's five years later and you're just like, how did all my friends become so beautiful and queer and trans? And you're just like, who knows? This is a mystery. Like no, no possible scientific explanation for this other than like being around people who love themselves and are themselves like truly and wholly and fully encourage encourages you to be yourself truly and wholly and fully i think that just like getting into magic you sort of if you're queer or trans you sort of like automatically go to other people who are queer and trans because it's a slightly different vibe than traditional masculine hyper masculine hyper cis energy that that magic sometimes can have yeah so that's my essay on why there's so many eggs in magic are you familiar with um defiant necro on on twitter no what's um, it about they are a uh, magic player, I believe, tournament player. I Ooh. I literally only follow them because they have like catered their aesthetic to look like Liliana. I sent you the link in a DM, and you can look. So that's like the tra- that's the trans dream, like <laughs> to like just love it. become that. Uh, I don't know. I they they obviously like they kind of look like that person already, but like also to like be trans and to like to do that. That's like I think in a lot of ways when you're imagining in your own mind like what is it like to be a woman or a man if you're seeking to transition or if you're um seeking to uh be non-binary or different than you are the the yearning that's it that's yeah. wrapped up in the aesthetic how you would like to envision yourself do you I, do you like that the yearning <laughs> Yeah, the trans I, think, I think that's that's always something that's I, I really find very, very good is like this sort of not anguish, like this yearning anguish that people have that judge themselves against. And it's all imaginary. It's all made up. And gender's just stupid. I love it, but I hate it. But it's this idea that like gender is something to like yearn for, or strive for, or have this like anguish about like becoming a gender or being a gender or embodying a gender. And I'm just like, man, the yearning is just like so key to that. This sort of like poignant 
constant longing for something different and like something better and like feeling more whole you know but the yearning is just so key to being trans in a, in a big way mm-hmm. <laughs> the yearning and also it's like one of my favorite tropes in erotic uh fan fiction is the yearning so oh okay there's that too i'm an erotic game master now by the way i do <sighs> sex work <laughs> i love it i you know it was it was it came to a point where it was like because i was kind of known for like doing these npcs that are very involved and like because i run uh strahd as a femme uh as the countess and Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. people like kind of like got into that right for obvious reasons um I mean, who among us would not be into hot, feb, angry, mean, blood-sucking straw with a harem? Like, uh, everyone's into that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, everyone's into that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a thing. I also, um, I do do dress up for my players when they get to Castle Ravenloft to fight her at the end. But, um, yeah, so... I, it it was one of those things where I didn't plan to get into um, sex work, but I got fucking bills. I'm the director of this project. I got to pay people, you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) I got to make more money. So yeah, and that was a, that was mostly, mostly my reasons. I mean, it is enjoyable. Um, It can be very exhausting. My, my therapist actually recommended that I up my price because I was talking to her about it and she was like, yeah, this seems like a very big emotional tax on you. You should probably charge more. And I was like, you know what? Jen, you're fucking right. I need to... Thank you, therapist Jen. Do you need to switch headphones? Do. Give me a sec. Damn. The Linda Linda speed reload on uh, headphones. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's almost like that. Has happened before, multiple times. My nice headphones, like, the battery just goes in in an hour. Gotcha. That's not even long enough to watch a movie. Damn. No. But Rip. I, li- I live alone. It's just me and my little doggy. I don't really need to worry w- about headphones very much unless it's for an interview. Yeah. Are you um on the East Coast then? I am on the East Coast. Do you mind like sharing geographical area? Yeah. So I my office is based out of New York City. I live in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, Have so you grown I, up there? Not really. I grew up in the South. Um, oh, what part? I grew up in Virginia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. What part of North Carolina? Um, mostly like the Outer Banks, actually. Like Where's... really close to the border. Outer Banks. Um, the very East Coast, where the islands are. Do you know where Jacksonville is and Sneeds Ferry and yeah? Yeah, like, okay. like further there. I mean, it's all the, that's on the East Coast of, of yeah, North yeah. Carolina, but a little further south, I think. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so you were more towards. Um, gosh, it's been it's been a few years. I used to live there. I, I was in the Marine Corps for a while, so um, that's one of the places I was stationed. Was in that swamp essentially. Hated it. It was it was terrible. I was in I was in SoCal for like seven years, and then I was like in Washington for a little while on recruiting, and then I went and I was on uh, Camp Lejeune for a while. Uh, oh, so you got spoiled wh- on the West Coast. Then once you got back to the to the East Coast swampland, you were too good for it. It was terrible. The first time I went to the field into the swamp, I got bit like a hundred and. 50 times by mosquitoes because i have like this succulent sweet trans blood or something i don't know what it is about my blood yeah. but it's very sweet and uh nutritious you just gotta you gotta be like me and you gotta you gotta become like so bitter and salty that no one fucking touches you that's right. my that's like the key to it is that like i just go out and i start thinking like vile rancid thoughts of hatred <laughs> uh and the mosquitoes tend to leave me alone is that your Here, origin story as a journalist like is that first no my origin story as a journalist is actually very funny uh and i i repeat this with like holy tongue-in-cheek and saying like i love my job um i originally applied to be an investigative journalist at io9 and i was rejected i I was told i didn't have enough experience there i i had only done like two investigations at that point uh and then i applied for the staff writer position i got it and as soon as i got that staff writer position i was like gonna prove everybody fucking wrong you said i didn't have enough experience i'm gonna get that experience right now and then i published my first investigation like two months into the job what was it on it was on uh nfts and D. oh how long ago was this last year around april oh okay congratulations on that wow good job you know i still email me it's very funny the, the NFT guys, they still email oh. me and they're like, we know your stance hasn't changed, but we have some new information. I'm just like, can we change? Can we change your mind, please? 
Yeah, please. They, they really would have changed my mind. And it's one of those things where like I just they can try as much as they want, but NFTs are so they're so bad. They're inherently speculative and the fact is that you will always be asking the next person behind you to pay for your investment and it's just shitty. It is it's the shitty. definition of an MLM scheme, yeah. 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 So it's a, it MLMs for tech pros, yeah. So uh, they can try as much as they want. Uh, I don't think they're going to do it. But yeah, so so that's my villain origin. My journalist origin story is getting rejected from io9 saying I didn't have enough investigative experience. And then getting the job anyway and being like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> no one can stop me. I'm here. Nice. Yes. Yeah, I, that's, that's, that's my secret power too. I 90% of my business is just run on spite. People telling me that I can't do stuff or I wouldn't be able to do it or like uh it's it's powerful you know just how how much you can drive yourself just based on like you know I'm gonna fucking prove you wrong yeah that's that's basically my whole life maybe not my whole life but definitely like a a good portion of it is me just going like you thought you thought (laughs) just retreating into my little alleyway like giggling like a maniac what's one of the things that you've worked on since you've been in io9 that you've really enjoyed uh i really really enjoyed there was like a, a period of like a month or two months probably about two months where i was able to just really focus in on interview with the vampire coverage yeah, so it was it was like the new show that came out. So I was able to I wrote recaps every week. I interviewed basically every single one of the cast. I got to meet Sam and Sam Reed and Jacob Anderson in person. I got to talk to like the writers. So I I wrote just like maybe 12, 15 pieces on interview with the vampire over the course of like two months. And that was just really, really fun because I loved that show and everyone on the cast was just so smart and so talented and invested in the source material. Like I was talking to some of them and they would just like pull out Anne Rice books and I was like, I love you so much. Um, so that's, that was like a really, really fun two months. And that also like kicked off an investigation into Anne Rice and the complication, the complicated relationship she had with fandom. I've sort of been, uh, I've had to sit on for a while because when I was like just starting to get back into it, uh, the OGL broke. So that's yeah. that's an investigation sort of in the back pocket. But I think uh, as far as like stuff at io9, just like that two month period where I was able to like obsess over interview with the vampire was really fucking cool. Was really, really fun for me. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I really fucking enjoyed that show, the gayest new show. If you if you spend your five to ten dollars or whatever it costs to subscribe to AMC or you spend try to spend it anywhere, you need to spend that ten dollars watching interview with the vampire vampire. it's it's incredible it's one of those things where i was like you know i really enjoyed those books when i was younger like i thought the movie was fun and i read about some of the updates they did because the new version of interview with the vampire um instead of being set in like the 1800s it's like the early 1900s and louis instead of being a plantation owner in louisiana is like a black man who owns brothels so it's still a lot of the same themes and issues, but packaged and presented in a way that feels much more modern and actually allows you to feel sympathetic for Louis rather than just being like, but you own slaves, you dumb bitch. Yeah. So it, it was really just like every every move they made in that adaptation was very smart and very calculated and worked really well. And you can get AMC for free for 30 days. That's plenty of time. It's it's only seven episodes, guys. Seven episodes of the most glorious, prestige, sexiest, funniest drama television you have seen in years. Also, vampires. Also, gay sex. Yeah. Lots of it. Like, explicit gay gay sex. And butts. Just butts everywhere. There's a lot of ass in that show, yeah. Um, And what an ass it is. Honestly, like after seeing Jacob Anderson in Game of Thrones as uh, Grey Worm and having like that romance on the screen and, you know, after the the series ended the way that it did, um, you know, obviously it's kind of nice to see Jacob Anderson in, in a different romance. I think there's something very interesting about the way that he portrays characters in romance that I find very mm. captivating. It's very intense and it's it's very maudlin almost and he's been really open during his time 
interviewing being like interviews and junkets because he's the main character of interview with the vampire and he's been very candid about his own struggles with mental illness and his own struggles with depression and i'm just like we know we can see it you're beautiful it's gorgeous everything is working for you so he's been really open about the fact that like he he struggles with mental illness and he had just like works through it and he it doesn't make it less of a struggle despite the fact that he's successful uh and it's just like really it was just really incredible to to see that part of the show and like that part of his character and that part of him personally come out these like really deep touching like handed moments where he was just very like open about about all of it i was just like Jacob Anderson, the man that you are. It was just really good. I And speaking of like trans signs, signs that you were trans before you knew what trans was, liking Anne Rice books, like when I was a teenager, <laughs> like how did I read those and be like, uh, I'm straight? Like... <laughs> I am a heterosexual cisgender man. I like <laughs> Anne Rice for the prose. <laughs> okay. okay. I just like the fancy words. Like, like I read I it think for it's... the plot. You dumb bitch. You do not. <laughs> I find this to be very compelling. <laughs> Her plots were all over the place. We all know it. Like, you stupid little bitch. <laughs> you, you dumbass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it very much is like it's one of those things like everyone who i i interviewed like dozens of people for this Anne rice feature that i did um or that i'm like still working on because i have like like literally like 20 interviews like stacked up that need to be parsed all of them uh who wrote fan fiction back in the day even if they didn't even if they weren't out even if they weren't uh the gender they are now like all, every single one of them is like oh yeah i'm queer now like i didn't know back then i just i liked it for the plot yeah there's something like, <laughs> yeah that's every single one of them every single one of them was queer like and they were like oh yeah but like i'm not out or like oh yeah i fully transitioned and i live with like my wife and i'm just like everyone here i love everyone in this in this gay ass faggy little bar <laughs> like i love every <laughs> single one of you cunts and so <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's so funny how much shared experience there is with like media and those uh, like Americans who are trans and like, oh, in like our age, I don't know what age you are, but like, I'm 35. So like me in my generation, apparently, there's only like 1% trans people that are out or like claim it, right? Um, But like Gen Z, it's like fucking like 5%. And so just like, fuck, there's tons of trans people in Gen Z. But, yeah, um, I'm I'm 32, so we're in the same like. Millennial oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. We see each other from across the hall with Anne Rice novels. <laughs> hey, what do you? What do you? Hey, you write fanfic too? You write fanfic. You write fanfic. <laughs> you, um, you fanfiction? But, yeah, so I I definitely wrote fiction when I was a teenager, and I still do. Obviously, I you know I do game design and I write, but mm-hmm. I um. That's kind of like where I started, though, was like fan fiction type stuff. And where I started was like the Wheel of Time and Battletech. And and, yeah. And of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with me, even though I'm wrapped up in this extremely gendered uh, fantasy series (laughs) called the Wheel of Time, where only the women are allowed to use magic and the men go crazy if they use the magic, the dirty, dirty magic. You're very cisgender. I was just really interested in the feminine stories, okay? I was very interested in the female perspective written by a man, all right? And it was very real to me as a teenager. I actually remember, and this is like me just like, uh, forehead, um, bringing my book to my mother and being like, why are women like this? And like trying to explain the Wheel of Time women to my mom and be like, why Why are women... Why lady? Why lady do lady things? Why are they so bad? What's happening? As told by this 65-year-old white guy. Um, but yeah. We all have our faults. I remember writing, and I got a typewriter when I was a teenager, and I remember writing like a Aww. fan fiction of like, isn't that cute, right? Um, I was like, I did that for a while. And I was writing on... Uh, some sort of like Battletech fan fiction where I included like the scenes that they don't really have in Battletech um, fiction, which is like romance and stuff. And I would write purely like romance stories because mm-hmm. um, I was a little queer. And um, 
I remember almost mailing it to like the author, but then I was like, no, I'd be embarrassed. And then I didn't. I should have though. Real that one. No, you should you shouldn't do that. I shouldn't. You're right. Actually, now that I think about it, that's a terrible idea. It's it's not as bad when you're when you're young, when you're like if you're if you're like 14, 13, 12 mm-hmm. and like you send an author fanfic, it's not a big deal. But like once you sort of hit the age limit where it's just like you could publish this, feel it back I was in. I was in that I was in that range. I was like probably like 14 or so. It, when I was it like, probably would have been fine. No. Yeah, I was just in, you know, I just really loved robots. And um, I thought it really could have benefited from some more queer romance. You know, I actually wrote an entire trans allegory as a novel when I was, um, you know, younger. I I wrote a um, coming of age story for uh, a boy um a boy in like a in an indigenous tribe um and they had a gender split between the roles and and they were allowed to perform under both gender roles and that was the story um that i wrote as a closeted trans person i'm never showing that to anyone but I did write that when I was like in my twenties, like yeah. deep in the closet, like Yeah, you're um, totally heterosexual cisgender yeah, person. Yeah. Gosh, being queer is a trip. <laughs> Coming yeah. out is wild. <laughs> it is, yeah. And of course yeah, and of course I would never um well, before I would write a story like that, I would do a lot more research into indigenous communities or I would just not write the story like that um, nowadays. But what's your normal schedule like as a journalist? What is my normal schedule like as a journalist? Uh, Good question. Um, It's like day to day, I kind of get up around like 6.30 or 7. I take my dog for a walk. Uh, I live in a in a pretty small town, so I can literally just like go walk to three or four different coffee shops. So I just choose whichever one I want to go to. Hang out there for a bit, come back. Uh, and then I, I start work around 8.30 or so. Answer emails. Basically, my morning is a lot of breaking news because that's before the West Coast gets in. So a lot of breaking news in the morning and then I get a break and then I generally try and work on features and sort of pursuing stories and interviews and working on longer articles in the afternoon when the West Coast is in and they can sort of take over breaking news a little bit more um so yeah a lot of the, a lot of the morning is service journalism and answering emails so you don't listen to a rise and grind playlist or is that not, like on your way usually. to the <laughs> not usually i have a couple like ap's that i listen to oh really uh yeah not a lot I'll, I'll fully admit to not being like a totally dedicated listener um but every like there every now and then i find one that i like and i just start listening to it but i don't i don't usually like keep up with like three or four of them i really only have one yeah what do you which one do you keep up with so right now i'm listening to uh the new taz steeplechase kind of as it comes out which i'm finding really good um and then the other one that i'm sort of like going through the backlog of is interstitial our hearts intertwined wow that's an incredible clump of words um yeah it's a kingdom hearts podcast the first season yeah it's it's or it's a kingdom hearts game called interstitial our hearts intertwined Uh Uh, and the podcast is run by the writer of the game so they know it very very intimately and they're very good at gming their friends basically the first season has roxanne the meme bitch you live like this it has Marsh from Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. It has oh. an OC from the Rescue Rangers that is part of the Cult of Gadget. Uh, <laughs> and it has Chris Angel, because technically speaking, Chris Angel is a Disney property. Which, yeah, it aired on like a, Dis- a Disney show, oh. a Disney channel, or a wow. Disney-owned channel. So technically speaking, Chris Angel is a Disney prince, and he is one of the characters in this first season of Interstitial. That's incredible. Wow. It's incredible. It's so good. <laughs> it's so Just, good. So I'm on, the, I'm on the second season now and it includes like Catwoman and John Cena and it's perfect. <laughs> uh link me to that. I'm actually very curious now. I have to I have to listen to this. I at least need to give it a shot. Um it's not Chris Angel voicing Chris Angel, is it? It is? It's not. It's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's not you. You gave me that yeah. look, like okay. No. Right. Uh, it's not, yeah. but they the uh, it's a full it's a full cast of like trans and queer people, mostly trans and queer people, 
um, which is really nice. Uh, and the person who voices that character does a very good job. <laughs> it's really good. Are you telling me that trans and queer people are very invested into media that they consumed before they had their puberty hit and then changed their lives? Okay. Second, their first puberty, their second puberty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly their third. Who knows? Speaking of second puberty, I actually had this happen. <laughs> this I chronically overshare, but you seem like the type of person who would not mind. Um. I was talking to someone, and eventually I'll probably admit to them uh, later, but I was talking to someone on the podcast, and um, so I guess people can look at the backlog and, like, try and guess. Um, but I was talking to someone on the pod- podcast, and I was just like, I was confused about what was happening, but I was, like, heating up in my chair. I was actually mm-hmm. getting hot and bothered, which I learned recently is actually a fucking thing for women. Um, yes. So So I was, like, getting, like, sweaty. And I was like talking to this person and it's like, this man was so charming and funny and like was very respectful to me and just like very engaging. And I was just like, what the fuck is happening? And I kept thinking like the literal stupidest fucking thing that I could ever say. And I was gonna, I was gonna say it, but I was like, no, that's fucking stupid Friday. You should not ask this man to dance with you. He lives in another country. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like you're you're on a fucking webcam don't do it oh but, my god i'm fucking dying <laughs> but you know having that like experience of having like, an emotion i know it's hard yeah lots like us, but that's what real human feelings feel like i was for yeah i was for i was that was tough. Like, I am not attracted to many men, but there was just something about that connection that we had just I in a normal know. conversation that it just, it fucking happened to me. And I was just like, fuck, like if we had been at a bar, I probably would have tried to go home with them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's what, that's what happened to me. You How know, you get it. I'm very convinced that Tyler, Tyler Posey and I had like some real energy. So I'm really glad that I, I had just that watched recording. that video. I just watched that video. I felt the energy. Thank you. I agree. I'm, I'm keeping I'm that shipping for posterity. You. I'm just like, that's our first date. <laughs> yeah. That's the edit. Yeah. Oh, it's, it was there. I agree. Yeah. It was yeah. there. Yeah. Either he's like just a very, very professional actor who like can just whip out charm and charisma with literally a rock. We're in love. No two, no other two options. <laughs> no other two options. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let me know when you finish writing that fanfic. I'll read it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll retweet it. <laughs> No, my fanfic is in like a very dark corner of the internet where nothing, no light touches. It's <laughs> too filthy. Yeah, it's fucking dark Linda 777. <laughs> actually, there's like a joke in my friend group about about that. I'm actually dark Linda. Oh, we don't know, we don't know where light Linda is. We don't know okay. them. Mm. I'm dark Linda. The rest of my friend group is like the light version of themselves. Like we have like mm-hmm. Leland and we have light Beth and we like made up these elaborate stories for like what dark Beth looks like. Yeah. Uh, but when it came to me, they're like, no, you're actually just dark Linda. And I'm like, it's fair. So we made up a, a like a whole persona for light Linda. Light Linda runs a mommy blog, but instead of like, <laughs> like children, it's just a mommy blog of their cats. Would light Linda mm. date Tyler Posey? Oh no, he has tattoos. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Just beyond the pale for for Light Linda. <laughs> no, Light Light Linda's like Light Linda would never. First, he's an actor. Second, he has tattoos. Right. Ridiculous. No, no, no. Yeah, who knows what kind of liberal ideas that he learned at acting school? I know. It's just like there's so much there that like you really can't count on. Uh, so no, unfortunately, Light Linda would not would not date Tyler Posey. Yeah, they're the ones missing out. I'm, me and him are clearly going to get married within a year. Clearly. <gasps> My dog just woke up and made a very cute face at me. Hello, puppy. Sorry for everyone listening in via the audio medium and you cannot look at my dog but please know that she is resplendent <laughs> friday's just like laughing she can't help it <laughs> what about your career at this point would you recommend to someone who is just starting out and looking to get into journalism or writing and things like that what would you tell yourself just starting out man that's hard because like my i made a lot of choices that I that I don't regret, but I made a lot of choices 
not to live in New York City. There were a lot of points in time where I could have moved to the city and like probably had an easier way into the business. And I made conscious decisions every single time. Like, I don't want to live in New York City um, just because I, I don't think I'm very well built for it. I don't think I'm suited to, to living in the city. I don't think I, I would do very well. I think I'm too much of a nature boy. Uh, you know, I like the mountains. I like the river. Um, so if you can make it in the city, I would say that's probably an easier way to get closer to the kind of work I do. However, there are a lot of ways to do the work that I do without living in the city, which I think is also something people should be aware of, even if that that work is longer to get to or is like it's harder to break in if you don't live in the city. It just is. Um, so that's something that I think is important for people to know is that like I'm very happy that it took as long as it did for me to get where I am just because it means I got to live where I wanted to live and I like I have a dog. I live on my, by myself in like a two-bedroom apartment I I'm like in a very very good place and a lot of that has to do with the fact that I made choices not to sacrifice my health and well-being to live in a place that other people thought was cool right yeah um, there's so that's probably that's probably like a solid a solid piece of advice you would say then that networking and that human connection is a very big strong uh, a very big strong a very strong I'm a professional interviewer um <laughs> A strong reason why someone might want to do repeat business with you as a journalist, you think? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons that I am doing well in my position is I answer a ton of emails, even if it's not related to what I do. Uh, but I think the fact is that like very much who I am, unapologetically, I'm who I am on Twitter, I'm who I am in... <laughs> Friday's just nodding like, yeah, they are. <laughs> I'm I'm very like open in, in interviews, uh, like my Slack, the Slack channel, Channel that I'm in with my team is chaotic. I'm so sorry. It would send my HR person into fits, but like, whatever. <laughs> um, uh, so it's one of those things where like, I am very lucky that I have a personality that people tend to like. I can talk to people and I can sort of establish a rapport with people even if I don't know them very long. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I feel like being personable and like having that kind of like networking ability, even if you don't have that kind of networking face-to-face -face, uh, opportunity, has been very helpful. Where then do you think that you sort of built up a lot of those skills for building rapport? Because I know that is an essential part of sales, but let's mm -hmm. talk about as far as like you as a journalist. Yeah, so... Like like most things, it comes from childhood trauma. Nice. I'm exaggerating. I I didn't have a, a very traumatic childhood, I'll fully admit that, but my, my mother was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. So not necessarily uh, anything that gave, gave me a mental illness, but definitely made me very adaptable very fast. I think that by the time I hit high school in ninth grade, I was on my 10th school. So it was one of those things where you sort of had to learn, I had to learn how to make friends friends very fast or else I just would not have had friends yeah. ever. Uh, so definitely moving around a lot, kind of like hypercharged a lot of that understanding of like how to talk to people, how to be friends, like what is it that makes a friend? Uh, and I think that that helped out a lot and just sort of helped kind of everything in my life has been really down to the fact that I can talk to people and be normal and also like slightly funny and self-depreciating uh, and interesting enough that other people want to, that people want to like talk to me again so very lucky that like I came out of that experience like as a kid with a lot of skills and equipment basically to continue to succeed as a young adult and as like a fully fledged whatever I am right now and we're gonna call it an adult but like jury's out <laughs> Wonderful. You uh, have done a lot of other work besides your current position. Let's talk about that a little bit and how that's helped you as far as you mentioned to me uh, before we started that you'd done some marketing and some editing and a little bit of graphic design and blog work. Can you tell me about some of the biggest takeaways of doing those, let's call them preliminary jobs on your way to doing the job that you'd like to currently do? Yeah, so all of those jobs were were local 
very intense, very like small, small workplaces. So again, kind of going back to the fact that like I had to learn how to make friends very fast. I also had to learn how to like manage myself in a workplace very fast. And I had to learn how to be self-reliant and I had to learn how to go after what I wanted to go into. And oftentimes if you're in kind of an office job in, in like a big office or you're in a kind of a job where you you are like one one part of a large team that's all working on the same project you can kind of get your your own vision and like self hmm, what's what's the word I'm looking for it's sort of like not identity but like goals the, the, the idea that like if you become a part of a team that's like all working on the same product you you sort of like become subsumed into that one project whereas where the way that that I worked at all these different smaller places it was like you have to wear a million hats and you have to do all of them perfectly and you have to report to these other people who are also wearing a million hats so it's one of those things where it's like by wearing all of those hats and like learning how to basically do five to six to seven jobs at a time it helped me become very adaptable. It helped me like learn where I wanted to go and like what kind of work I wanted to pursue that would like actually uh, make me happy even as like who really truly wants to work um, in our capitalist hellscape. So just yeah. sort of finding finding a work that I would enjoy and would not make me want to immediately run screaming for the mountains. Yeah, I think also in learning so many different jobs and then doing them for short periods of time, you're learning how to learn quickly. That's a yes. that's a skill. Absolutely. Learning how to learn quickly, learning how to adapt to new environments, learning like when to push boundaries in your workplace and like when to sort of be like, that is my job or when to say that isn't my job or when to say, you know, I want this to be my job. Kind of figuring figuring out all of those things as you are working is very helpful to allowing yourself self-determination in the workplace, which can often be very hard. But again, I got I got pretty lucky because like all the places where I worked, uh, you would have so much responsibility in your individual job that you could kind of push the boundaries a little easier and like expand into areas that like maybe you wouldn't have been expected to expand to or no one would have asked you to do it. So just kind of like figuring out how to do your job, do your job fast and find other parts of your job that you find more fulfilling. Absolutely. A lot of the time, especially when you're working for someone else, you definitely have to find the thing that you personally enjoy because doing the thing usually is not what you enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's even the, the case for io9. Like I will tell anyone I love my job at io9, uh, but there's a good chunk of it that's service journalism where it's just like blood, like CEO for the CEO gods, you know, blood for the blood gods, which is like, oh yeah, like John Cena's in a new film. Let's write about that trailer, even though there's only like five seconds of new footage right like, yeah. all right yeah so i mean like i did that today with the dungeons and dragons film i'm like okay there's two seconds of new footage and my my editor today was just like okay so you can either write about two seconds of new footage in the new dungeons and dragons trailer or you can write about two seconds of new footage in the 65 trailer and i'm just like oh fuck and he's like linda which one can you make a mountain out of a molehill and i'm like i can make i can molehill any mountain not in the sexy way, but in the sexy way, if it's cool. Anyway, I read about Dungeons and Dragons. Shifting to, uh, I had, so I've started to do this thing for my community where I open it up to my community to ask questions of you. We can skip any of these. Um, right. No, hit me. What do we got? Okay. Let's do okay. It. So I just realized that I had these. This is literally the first time I've ever done like community questions for people. So I apologize for not letting you know in advance. But the first question we're going to do with the super hardest question that we have here, tabletop role-playing game system. Would you use for your Dave Bautista romantic comedy? Oh my God. Ah! Okay. So, so many options. Um, Probably. Okay. I'm going to say Pasión de la Pasiones. Is a, it's a powered by the apocalypse system. Uh, it's written by Leon Conway Gambetta. Let me double check that name real fast. Um, but yeah, so it's basically a telenovela. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Brandon Leon Gambetta. 
Sorry, I got him mixed up with another Magpie Games writer. Gotcha. Um, so, once again, let me double check. And then Leon Gambetta wrote Pasión de la Pasiones, which is a soap opera-based Powered by the Apocalypse game. Uh-huh. And it has this really cool mechanic where if you're not in the scene, you act as the audience watching the telenovela. Oh, my God. So as as like other people are playing out scenes, if you who are not in the scene, the audience like reacts visibly and sort of like acts dramatically in the background, you get extra points later in the game to like plus one forward and stuff. Wow. That sounds I'm... fucking amazing. What's it called? Is it is that the Passion? Passion de la Passion? Passiones. Okay. So um... I think I, I would do that. That's that's kind of my my bag for romance where it's like not very fantasy, not very magical. Like you can sort of add that in if you wanted to, but I think I think as far as like what I would want to do with Dave Bautista to sort of like take him out of those more genre roles and just give him like a straight up and down, no frills romance. I would do Pasión de la Pasiones. I'm trying to find the the buy this game button. I'll have to look later. I can't find oh, it right now. Great. I see it listed on their uh, on their blog, but it's not on their it. I'll have to I'll have to find it, or you can yeah. send it to me if you do know where it is. Um, I definitely on... want to link it. Absolutely, yeah, I'll find it. It's um produced by Magpie Games. Uh huh. Yeah, I got it. Okay, I cool. Thank it. you so much. Great. Yeah, um, it's one of those games where it's just like. I, I got to play Ashcans of it, and I've played it, but like the full game before, and it's just really, really fun. I've, I've spoken with Brandon about this before. It's like, I really want to make a hack of this game. He's like, what, what kind of hack do you make? And I'm just like, bestie, it would be a Fast and Furious hack. Oh my god. <laughs> Which would be perfect for this game, because it's all about like family and bonds. Family's and like, everything lose everything family 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 anyway so that's like my big brain moment for passion um and i'm afraid of this and eventually i'll get around to it Um, yeah but yeah if if i had choose one game for Mm -hmm. my if bautista romantic cinematic universe it would be pasio de la pasiones by brandon leon gambetta published by magpie games yeah let's let's make it happen linda let's start the campaign Let's get it. Let's get you at the table with Dave Vossita playing oh this God. game. I would melt. He's such a good boy. Yeah. All right. Another question. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Thank you for the last question, Nate. Um, and then we got one. Uh, well, another one from Nate. How did you handle the pressure of being like the nexus of all the breaking news, especially when there was a ton of rumors and less than credible sources engaging in wild speculation in the wake of you first breaking the story? Yeah. So I think, I think step one to that is not taking myself too seriously, but taking my work very seriously. Uh, I think that there's a big difference in between thinking I'm special versus thinking that like the work that I do is important. Um, so just sort of trying to remove uh, my ego from it in a, in a really clear way, because that happens to a lot of journalists who break one big story and they're constantly trying to figure out like, how do I break the next big story? And I'm just like, that that is the path towards madness. Um, so a lot of it just came from focusing in on my job and doing my job and talking with my editors and making sure that I was doing my job right and making sure that like the the lawyers at Geo Media were like looking through what I was writing. Um, just kind of like taking all the necessary steps needed to do breaking revolutionary news at an industry-wide level. Um, and luckily having like a massive, not a massive, like a three person team behind me, like supporting me. Um, so that's really how I did it is just sort of like staying focused on the work that I was doing, staying focused on what what I was hearing and like what my sources were telling me, just being very careful how much I let let out and when I let it out. So just just kind of like, you know, uh, solid journalism and not taking myself too seriously and also like uh, relying on my support system at work. I'm, I'm very lucky that this is my full time nine to five or eight thirty to five thirty job. Uh, and I can dedicate a lot of time and a lot of hours, other people's time and hours 
to a story. I'm just really grateful that I was in a position where I could really nail it. Yeah, and especially having a support team, I'm sure is like a huge benefit as a journalist. Yeah, because they're going to be able to gather things for you, sort things out when you don't have time, if you're busy with something else. That sounds like it's like the biggest upgrade. Oh, gosh, that would be great. But that that's... uh... I wish that happened. Uh, it was. It's mostly like my editor saying, "Like we believe in you." <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that's really what I mean by like my editors would oh. be like, "We believe in you," and also like, <laughs> "Well, we'll make sure your schedule's clear." <laughs> and I'm like, "Okie dokie, <laughs> cool." And you know, that's, wow. I'm sorry that's I built perfect. that up. I'm sorry. I really did. I'm just like, we don't even have copy editors. Like, no. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah, that's that's why, like, every now and then there's, like, two or there's always two or three, like, little little grammar errors that I beat myself up over. Because we, we don't have copy editors. We don't have fact checkers. It's all, all me. And, like, occasionally my editor will be like, did you ask about X, Y, and Z? Like, do you have an additional source for this? So their job is really to point out where my reporting has failed and my job is to fix it. But I wish I had... I I wish I had like more of a, an active team, a support team, a Linda yeah. team. Yeah, maybe maybe one day when you have a primetime television show or something, right? That'd be really cool. I don't know if I would want that, but I I'm very happy just like being a weird little cryptid reporter in an alley. I really like it. I really like my job. What are your opinions on classic bin unions that have been around for a while versus like grassroots union efforts uh, across like non-union industries and how can people in like the tabletop space where we are seeing more union movement now with Paizo, mm-hmm. for instance, as an mm-hmm. example. And one of the reasons why my platform exists really is because the of the disparity and the low pay for a lot of contributors for products. And one of the reasons why people are unionizing or starting to in this industry is because of the sort of disparity in uh, bringing in freelancers and um, the fact that a majority of people who work in the industry are part-timers. Like mm-hmm. I was talking to Brian Cortijo, and he has been contributing for 20 years to the community, but has never done it full-time because the compensation has never been enough. And this is someone who has been on the biggest titles in the industry, you know? Yeah. What? So all that to say, yeah. what do you think about unionization that you can talk about? I don't know if this is like a loaded question, but... I'm in a union. I'm in a union. I'm in the the Gizmodo Media Group union. We are organized through with, for, through the Writers Guild of America East. Uh, we had a strike last year when our contract was up, and we we didn't think our contract they were offering was fair. So I'm I'm very pro pro union and pro organization. I'm uh, banding together and telling giant corporations to fuck off. I think it's I think it's really important that I don't think that there's ever going to be a trade guild for those role playing games. Um, Unlike there's like trade guilds or other entertainment industries where it's like people have to go through the guild to get work. Um, so I and then like all the individual corporations like are associated with the trade guild. I don't know if that's going to be possible in the short term for tabletop, but I think I would encourage every single tabletop third party workplace to unionize because if the the workers have a say at the at the table when c-suite and the executives like make decisions they'll also be able to fight for freelancers rights and eventually freelancers will be able to like form a union and be able to advocate for themselves but i think that the companies and the people who work at the companies really have to be be the way have to like start to change themselves away in order to like bring everyone up behind them um, I really wish that there was an easier way to create a freelancers guild or a, tr- a freelancers union, uh, but it is it is so difficult. It really is. I think it's one of those things where I, I just think it's incredibly difficult. I really hope someone finds a way to make it work, but I think that the the most immediate and effective way to demonstrate the power of organization and, and labor and workers is individual unions at individual shops individual like third party publishers and individual first party publishers and individual you know like wizard of the coast you could have like three unions in it but yeah uh there is no minimum number of people needed to start a union wonderful just throwing that one out there you only need 30 percent of the workforce to agree to to a to a union vote to have a union vote there's no limit on how small a union can be with respect to your time, do you have time for one more question? Yeah, I have time for a couple more. My friends haven't texted me back 
Um, so, oh, I have a game night tonight for all the listeners, but who knows? Damn. Maybe my friends have abandoned me and they don't like me at all. <laughs> that's, uh, fine. that's fine. You can always hang out with us in this community. But uh, that being said, um, now that we know me. that you're not a fake gamer because you let everybody know that you play games. Ugh, yeah. Fooled you all. You've fallen into my gamer trap. What are some of the best practices for members of the role-playing community in order to engage with and promote games journalism as opposed to sensationalism? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Hard because it's so much of how games journalism gets treated is not necessarily up to the way that individual people are treating games journalism. Yes, a lot of people treat Kotaku like shit and that shouldn't happen. Um, and But at the same time, a lot of it comes down to the fact that legacy publications are simply not respecting video games and tabletop games and board games as like art. And they aren't respecting the format and the media as uh, on the same level as like and they they see video games play as like two different kinds of art of like art where like one is actually art and the other one is like silly little games for silly little people and i think that it's one of those things where it's just like the legacy media the media corporations have to like recognize that games video games board games important cultural artifacts that need to be respected and it's it's really hard for me to say that like individual people need to do x y and z in order to support games journalism because so much of it is just uh really really comes down to how the like 60 70 80 year old men who are making like you know six digit salaries are th- even seven digit salaries are thinking about video games and that's that's really the shitty thing because like launcher was nixed waypoint is really really like understaffed d4 is out like there's so many like instances of all these like really great hubs of gaming journalism kind of like going by the wayside just because it's not respected so i'd say for individual people uh, follow the gaming journalists that you like twitter on Substack, like wherever you can because the, the media landscape is so fraught right now that it's pretty risky to be a journalist in any in any beat but especially risky to be a journalist in the entertainment beat who focuses on video games so follow your favorite journalists on twitter or substack support their work by refreshing like refreshing like going to their their articles and reading their articles is always great and if you do decide to become a subscriber try and become a subscriber on the page that the games journalism is on um, because that will show up in like the big wig numbers that like oh yeah like subscribers rose eleven percent because of this. So in your case, it would be going to your link provided on your Twitter profile, gizmodo.com/author/lcodega, uh, which is listed in their uh, profile, but I also included in the description. And you can hit the follow button and then sign up uh, with Google because uh, everyone here probably has a Google and you can follow Linda's articles. I mean, that's that's really the best way to do it is just follow follow the writers that you respect and the, the people who are doing good reporting. Um, that's true for all media, but I think especially true for games journalism, where it's just like it's just not respected by the, the people in charge. It really isn't. Yeah, I, I wish I wish like. I really wish I had a better way for people to take direct action um, to support games journalism. Um, oh, I'm going to, I'm tr- attempting to like host a panel at Gen Con about games journalism. So if you like what I do and you're going to Gen Con, like come to that panel, show, show Gen Con and like the people who are paying attention to Gen Con that like games journalism is important and necessary. I would, you know, not that you need my help, but like if you do need to talk to anybody, I mean, like I talk to Cobalt Press all the time. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll slide you some emails or something. So as a former, you know, panelist of Cobalt Press at Gen Ooh. Con, um, I'm, I'm a big deal. Okay, Linda. Like I know you're coming in here with like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think you're so, a big deal, but I will tell you that someone did send me a okay. Pulitzer Prize for Dragon Slaying. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. I am going to, hold on. Let me screen cap this so I can put this as part of the uh, release. Okay, here we go. Nice face too. Great. I'll show this to you to make sure that this is okay. I'm sure it's fine. Uh, but yeah, another another podcast like 3D printed this for me and sent that's... it over. Dungeon Master of None. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. They're really oh, nice. Cool, cool. 
Cool, cool. So, so the Pulitzer Prize, the 3D printed Pulitzer Prize for Dragon Sling came from Dungeon yeah. Master of None. How do you feel now that you like went through that whole gauntlet of the ups and downs and you're getting on a plane and a big story breaks and then, then you're talking <laughs> to Matt Mercer and then as you're talking to Matt Mercer, you get another breaking update. How was that and how are you feeling now? I am not unconvinced that Wizards, like, has some sort of bug on my computer. Um, <laughs> like, they know when I'm traveling. No, it's one of those things where it's just like, I, I knew something was going to happen. I'm just like, this is going to be a very funny joke. <laughs> and, and then it did, and then it happened. I'm like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. So it's one of those things where it's like half half bad timing on my part, and then other half just like, I hope they do it. I hope they do it for the bit. So I'm really happy that it's winding down. I'm happy to be able to focus on other investigations and other reporting. Okay, then. Thank you so much for coming on board, Linda. Is there anything that you want to talk about or you would like to share with yeah, before you, you go? Look, I want you to look at this cute little owl bear plush I have. Wow, that is so cute. Was that a bribe that Wizards sent you? No. <laughs> Wizards could never make something this perfect. <laughs> it would just ruin it. Hmm. Um, I have a cute little fuzzy owl bear by Metal Weave Games. If anyone oh, knows. yeah, they're great. They made the owl bear. Um, no, I think that I've sort of said a lot of what I wanted to say. I'm really happy we got to chat. I think I think we're good. Unless you have like some other like funny user questions, but other than that, I'm all, I'm all set. I'm out of here. Good to go. Thank you. I'm going to hit the stop button now. <laughs>